Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, uh, Bill Davis, for that announcement about prison ministry. Um, it is a beautiful ministry, also. Uh, I encourage you, if you're not involved in that ministry, pray for it. But if you want to be involved, definitely see Bill Davis on that. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Good morning, Risen Hope Church. It is good to be in the sanctuary of the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. For the Apostle Paul states these words, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your inspired word, and I pray. I have studied, Lord God, but I need your Holy Spirit. Hide me behind your cross, crucify my flesh, speak through me in such a way that your people will hear your words and not mine. That there may be some soul here that does not know you will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and deepen our knowledge of you and your work in the person of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. For the past couple of Sundays, we've been climbing the Mount Everest of the high Christologies, the study of Jesus. As Paul verbally paints this amazing spellbinding portrait of Jesus in his total supremacy. Jesus is the supreme creator of the universe, but he is also the head of his church, his body. And as Paul concludes this stunning verbal portrait of Jesus, he shows us how God makes his way down the valley of human experience through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now that we are captivated by the supremacy of Christ's person, Paul turns our attention to the supreme work of Christ in us, which is God reconciling us back to himself in Christ. God brings us to himself by consecrating or concentrating all of his fullness in Jesus. Then Paul shows us how this reconciliation plays out in the life of the believers past, present, and future. Let me give you the first one. God's fullness, the scripture says, was pleased to dwell in Christ. That's a very loaded phrase there. 
to capture the fullness of what the Apostle Paul is referring to in verse 19, you really do have to double back to verse 15 through 18. For the Scripture says, For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the scripture says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul does not mince any words here. Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. He is not a symbol or a mere image of God. He is God. And after Paul paints this high, exalted, verbal portrait of Jesus as this blazing, magnificent revelation of God, he shows us that he is the supreme creator of the universe and the head of the church. Paul brings us to a climax in this one verse, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And God really does this. He packs all of himself, all of his fullness in Christ bodily. Paul picks up on this same phrase in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, for in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, Paul is drawing our attention to the, the eminence of God and his involvement in the world that he created. The concept of filling here is akin to the Old Testament language when the Lord said in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's, the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Or Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 24 can a man hide himself in secret places so that he cannot, so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. This was Paul's way of his, this language in the Old Testament, which was used multiple times to convey that, that the Lord was choosing a place for his name to dwell. Now Paul reveals to us that Christ is that permanent place in bodily form, in whom all his fullness was pleased to take up permanent residence. To dwell here is in the present tense. He had a human body. He was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Yet in all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, his word, wisdom, and glory, are perfectly displayed in Christ. Christ is the new temple. God in all of his fullness was jam-packed in Jesus. God himself makes himself known to us in the form of a person, in the form of a human. He was not a ghost or a phantom or a make-believe human. One of the heretical teachings was called Gnosticism, which was circulating in this church during that time. They denied that, that God's son assumed a human nature. They said he didn't really have a body and a soul and a spirit, 
bones and skin, hair, etc. They thought that Jesus appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. Well, that's a lie. Because we know that this fullness was concentrated in Christ in bodily form. Listen, everything we want to know about God, but was afraid to ask, or is afraid to ask, is found and embodied and expressed in Jesus. Not only is deity found exclusively in Jesus, it is found extensively in Jesus. For he alone is God, which means that no one else is. Robert Cheney Murray said that we need to learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For he is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Paul makes it very clear. In fact, he makes it very clear in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that had this mind among you, which, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. He was found in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Essentially, what this is saying is that Jesus is not partially God. He is not part God and part man. He is fully God and fully man. You see, when Jesus became human, it was personal. This was personal for God. John Piper, in his brilliant little book called The Passion of Jesus Christ, gives 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. I'm only going to give you one for the sake of time. Jesus came to die on that cross to express the purpose of reconciling us back to himself. Verse 19, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, reconciliation is more than just forgiveness. It is welcoming in the very, into the very heart and arms of God. Not only, watch this. This one and only who can bring together both God and man in a fully restored relationship is the mediator between God and man, which is Jesus Christ, the God-man. After work this past week, uh, the Lord led me to talk to a young man who was very angry at life. He felt paralyzed by discouragement, and he wanted to end it all. And as I kept quiet and listened to him and listened to his pain and his hopelessness, my mind began to race back to the cross of Jesus. 
And I knew that that was the answer that he needed. It really wasn't psychology, for psychology would have taken him but so far. Yes, it might have unearthed his past and given him some uh, techniques to deal with his anger and discouragement, but what he needed more than anything else was an acute awareness of his own desperate need for Christ. You see, what this guy needed to understand was that he was not merely at war with himself, but he was at war with God. And he didn't even realize how serious it was. And I asked him this question. I said, do you have any idea what Christ went through for you? And as as his gaze began to fixate, do you know what Christ went through to spare you from God's wrath? And suddenly his perspective began to change. I told him, I said, young man, you, you have no idea that the only reason why you are still here is because of the sheer grace and mercy of God. And I can see tears welling up in his eyes. And I said, God loves you so much that he sent forth his son to die on the cross for your sins. And God rose him from the dead for your justification so that you would not experience condemnation. And I said, do you realize that the only reason why you're still here is because of God's overwhelming, radical, reckless love for you. Put your eyes on Christ and him crucified, and you will find hope beyond your despair. Your answer is the Prince of Peace. It was on that cross that Jesus died to spare you from all of God's fury. So the question is, is you have a choice right now. Will you trust him? Will you trust God's perfect plan of salvation as revealed through Jesus Christ, or will you trust your own self-salvation project? I said, are you ready to surrender yourself to Christ right now in this moment? And he said, yes. And I didn't want to rush into leading him into a sinner's prayer because I don't believe in just rushing into that because of false conversion. So I wanted to explain to him more fully the gospel as I brought a Bible for him the next day. You see, when Christ embodied himself in human form, this was God being personal with us. The supreme work of Christ is seen in the lives of the believers, past, present, and future. Paul reminds these Colossians of their past. Look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, uh, this is essential because we really can't appreciate the good news without being impacted by the bad news. Paul briefly underscores the sin nature of all humanity in one unique but loaded phrase. 
and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You see, it was because of the sin of Adam and Eve that all of humanity is in total recall. An elderly man was stopped by a cop around 2 a.m. And he is asked where he is going this time of night. The man replied, I'm on my way to a lecture about alcohol abuse and the effects it has on the human body, as well as smoking and staying out late. The officer then asked, oh, really? Who is giving this kind of lecture this time of night? The man replied, that would be my wife, officer. You see, R.C. Sproul said that, that through the gospel, we learn that we as humans who were made for fellowship with God are by nature, that is, in Christ, dead in sin. And not only dead in sin, that means that you are unresponsive to and separated from our maker. You can't even communicate with God even if you wanted to because you are dead spiritually. He said that we are constantly twisting his truth, breaking his laws, belittling his goals and standards, and offending his holiness with our unholiness. So that we are truly without hope and without God in the world. You see, the natural mind of the unsaved sinner is at war with God constantly. The sinner may be sincere and religious and even moral and upstanding, but he or she is still at war with God. I know that doesn't sound popular today, but it's the truth. You see, we have done more than just turn away from God. We have turned against God. In our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. It is our sin nature that locks us into active hostility against God. We were enemies of God. Indeed, we were children of wrath, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. But Paul doesn't keep us there, does he? There is hope. Paul reminded these Colossians of their past, but he also reminds them that they are reconciled in their present. It says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has what? Now reconciled you. In his body, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, uh, this is really talking about, um, well, Paul talks about horizontal uh, reconciliation. Horizontal reconciliation is when God, through Christ, breaks down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ, you, were, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
Yet the reconciliation that Paul is referring to here is a vertical direction of reconciliation. In other words, we need to be restored in a right relationship with God. But the question is, how can a sinful man ever be reconciled to a holy God? How can a holy God forgive the wicked and still be just? How can God lower his standards, close his eyes to sin, and compromise with man? Because if he did, then the universe would fall to pieces. God clearly does not close his eyes to sin, does he? No. His son Jesus pours himself out into flesh and blood and meets the demands of God's justice against our sin by virtue of his death on that cross. I don't know who I'm talking to, but but when you repent and place your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, you will experience the peace of God because you have peace with God through Christ. The basis for the reign of Christ's peace is the blood of his cross. We are now reconciled to God as his friends, which means that we are no longer his enemies, no longer at war with God. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This present tense experience we have is the cause for great rejoicing, isn't it? Listen to how Paul elaborates on the believer's reconciliation to God in the present tense. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Our hearts melt at the sheer magnitude of these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's let those words sink in. Then Paul gives this profound argument. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still kicking up dirt, while we were still holding our fists up at God, rebelling against him, doing everything that we were big and bad enough to do, Christ died for us. Every time I think about, every time I contemplate the supreme work of Christ on the cross, it melts me. I know this is not Good Friday service. I know this is not Holy Communion Sunday. But every day we think about and reflect on What Christ accomplished for us at Calvary, it should overwhelm us. This is astonishing that the God of the universe would embody himself in flesh for us. It just... God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, here's the key terms, we have now been justified by his blood. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Do you know that you're covered right now by the blood of Jesus Christ? And that you have escaped the wrath of God that was destined for you because of your sin nature? I know that's true about me. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, watch this, by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled. <laughs> now we are reconciled. You get that? In the present tense. Shall we be saved by his life? And Paul is not done. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, everyone say now, now receive reconciliation. Now, right now, you are reconciled to God right now. What does that mean? That I'm no longer God's enemy, I am God's friend. Christ not only willingly died for our sins, but he became sin for us to absorb God's wrath. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <laughs> you see, a transaction took place at Calvary. God the Father transferred all of my sins, including my sin debt, upon Christ's account, thus exchanging my sin for his perfect righteousness and his flawless obedience. Commenting on this verse, Martin Luther wrote, all the prophets did foresee in the Spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc., that ever was or could be in all the world. What? For he, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, is not now an innocent person and without sins, but a sinner. He was, of course, talking about the imputing of our wrongdoing to Christ as our substitute. <laughs> Isaiah says this way, said it this way. Isaiah says that he was numbered with the transgressors. Listen to how Christ rescues us and secures our peace. Isaiah chapter 53 but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. John Piper said that the, the substitute, Jesus Christ, does not cancel the wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it away from us to himself. God's wrath, wrath is just, and it is spent, not withdrawn. Jesus spent God's wrath destined for each and every one of us. 
You see, our reconciliation to God is at the heart of our atonement. You know what atonement means? Meant to be always at one with. Atonement. We were meant to be at one with God. This is the good news of salvation. John Piper in his book, The Passion of the Christ, brings it home when he says that, but what is the ultimate good news? What is the ultimate good in the good news? It all ends in one thing, God himself. All the words of the gospel lead to him or they are not the gospel. For example, salvation is not good news if it only saves from hell but not for God. People may say, well, yeah, I really don't want to go to hell. Okay, but are you for God? Forgiveness is not good news if it only gives relief from guilt but doesn't open a way to God. Justification is not good news if it only makes us legally acceptable to God but doesn't bring us into fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from bondage but doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us into the Father's family but not into the Father's arms. You see, this is crucial. Many people tend to embrace the good news without embracing God. And it's not wrong to want them, right? Indeed, it is folly not to. But the evidence that we have been changed is that we want these things because they bring us the enjoyment of God. This is the greatest thing that Christ died for. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. You see, this is at the heart of being reconciled to God. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So yes, we have been reconciled to God in the present. But he also shows them not only to be reconciled to God in the present, but also he shows these Colossian believers of their future transformation is really the purpose of reconciliation. Look at verse 22. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, here's the key word, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the purpose of reconciliation is really personal holiness. God does not make peace with us so that we can continue to be rebels. The goal of God saving us is to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I know it's not popular talking about pursuing holiness in a world that is saturated with sin. I know it's countercultural. But Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. I understand that it's certainly true that God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to have you stay there. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
You see, the word holy is closely linked to or associated with saints, as Paul mentioned earlier. Both ideas express being set apart or being devoted to God. In the New Testament, saints are not dead people who during their lifetime perform miracles and never sin. No, that's not the accurate definition of, uh, of, of saints. That's bad theology. In the New Testament, saints were living people who trusted in Jesus Christ as their salvation. Paul wrote this letter to living saints, chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae, that you would be blameless and above reproach before him. What does this mean? This simply means that we will be free from accusation. One who has been reconciled to God, no charges can be brought up against you. The charges have been dropped. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? You see, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, would like to dig up some dirt on us and throw some charges at us, but they won't stick. Such charges cannot change the nature of our relationship with the Father. You see, when you know Christ and his person and work, you are gripped by the promise from Isaiah chapter 24, where he says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. No matter what accusations Satan throws your way, you are blameless in Christ. Blameless in Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, watch this, there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus now, today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but now there is no condemnation. In the actual Greek construction, it actually means katakosnosko, uh, which means no knowledge of condemnation. There's no knowledge of you being condemned whatsoever. That's what I was trying to communicate to this young man, that once you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. But the question is, are you in Christ? Because if you're not, today is the day of salvation. The moment you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you want God to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, then you have to be in Christ. Let me help you. Let me illustrate this for you. As I hold up my hand, my hand represents our position before God. We are alienated from him, hostile to God. We are enemies in his sight apart from Christ. Our minds are at war with him, and our behavior is evil. My hand forms this fist, and as I, my hands forms this fist representing us and our sin nature, we shake our hands in the face of a holy God. Then God, through reconciliation, what he does when he saves us, when he represents us on that cross, that when God saves us and redeems us and transfers us from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom, into the kingdom of his beloved son and redeems us and restores us to himself, what he does is that now he covers us 
in Christ. See, the rebellion is still there, right? But when Christ, when God the Father looks at us now, he sees us as being blameless. Because we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But the fist is still balled up there, right? Progressive sanctification begins to unball the fist. So that God now conforms you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But for now, every time God looks at you when you sin and when you mess up, he sees you are covered in the blood of Christ. He sees his son righteousness. When God the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he sees you in Jesus. But the question is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ right now? See, the most important thing for the believer is not how we look in our own sight or in the sight of others, but how we look in God's sight. We are blameless before him. Not only is their future transformation certain, but their perseverance in faith will be evident in four things. Verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The, the, the word if clause does not mean that a believer can lose his or her salvation. If he or she fails to continue in the faith, that's not what this means. This can be translated, if indeed you continue in the faith, and I believe that you are doing so. This is how the word is used in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. See, Paul says, if you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which they will. Paul is using architectural image when he says that being stable and steadfast, not shifting. You see, the town of Colossians was, was really located in a region known for earthquakes. And just as a house which is firmly set on a foundation will not move, so too you and I are truly saved and built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, then you'll continue in your faith. Like the Apostle Paul, everything we believe in is riding on the gospel. God is Lord of all. The Lord of all came down to earth the earth he created, and the greatest rescue act of all times to restore humanity to himself. So let me ask you a question. Where are you with the supreme work of Christ? Have you surrendered yourself to him through trusting in him as your Lord and Savior? Because if you haven't, today is the day of salvation for you. To trust the supreme work of Christ on the cross for you. Christ died on the cross for your sins. Father, we thank you and love you for your glorious gospel as manifested in the person and work of Christ. Now I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone here that does not know you, anyone online or even present, that has not come to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that you'll give an acute awareness of their own sin and their desperate need for the Savior. And I pray, God, that as you convict their hearts and bring them to their knees, may they repent and yield 
and say, what must I do to be saved? And in that moment that you would miraculously save them, Lord God, unto your salvation, we thank you, Lord God, for the supreme work of Christ on the cross and reconciling us back to yourself. We pray all of this in the mighty and wonderful and perfect and strong and holy and magnanimous name that is above every name. That in that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us all stand to our feet. Are we dismissing now or is there another song? No? Amen. Dismiss. Dismiss. As we stand to our feet uh, to symbolize our submission to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, repeat after me together. Jesus Christ is Lord. Say a little with a little bit more energy. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of His church. He is Lord of me. Now let me close with this benediction, these encouraging words from the Apostle Paul. Listen to these words. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go in peace. Amen. Amen. He will do it. Tell your neighbor, he will do it. Amen.